Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 86. It definitely feels good to be recording again. Uh, you guys probably haven't noticed it because I, I did a good job of, of getting stuff done up ahead, but this is actually the first episode I've recorded for about three weeks, or two and a half weeks at least, because I recently started a new uh, position at my job, and I knew things were going to be hectic in those first couple of weeks, and, and actually they still are, but I, I tried to get stuff done up ahead so that I wouldn't have to worry about podcasting during those two weeks, uh, but I'm back now with my trusty microphone and... and you're listening, so all right. Uh, this episode, for the first time since early May, we are returning to the world of four-color newsprint for a look at the sixth storyline from the Sunday incarnation of the Superman newspaper strip. Will the story have been worth the wait? Well, that would be telling, wouldn't it? So stick around and find out. First up, though, we have a message of feedback from Gary Adams, and he writes, My unofficial review... Hey, Michael, so I've been lazy and haven't listened to your podcast until yesterday when I literally downloaded every single episode, loaded about half onto my MP3 player, and I'm up to about 15 now. I am loving it. Also, it really helps me pass the time at my boring job. I think it was episode 12 when you made the official announcement that you and Michael Kaiser would be doing Legends of the Batman. At the end of the announcement, you played a promo for it. Batman has always been my favorite character as I am an editor on Batman Gotham Knights Online and host a podcast of my own. But when I heard that promo, I couldn't help but smile the whole time. I listen to every episode of that show and really, really miss hearing new episodes. I know life happens, but still, it sucks. Anyway, back to Superman. Your podcast is a DC history class. It's awesome. I learned a lot just by listening to the first few episodes. You do an absolutely amazing job. Keep up the great work. Gary Adams. And then Gary sent another message a few days later saying that he made it up to episode 55 or so already and was still really, really enjoying it. And he commented that the Christmas episode, which I think was episode 51, if I recall correctly, I think it was episode 51. Anyway, he said that was one of his favorites, and that as for the regular episodes, he appreciated that, you know, even when the story was boring, I was still able to produce an entertaining show about it. So, thanks again, Gary, for the kind words. I'm really happy that you're enjoying the show and and that you're learning from it. Um, The show is a a labor of love, and, and if people can take both of those things away from it when they listen, then I think I've achieved the goal that I set out to do. I actually replied to Gary straight away on his message and told him I was impressed that he had, you know, burned through the episode so quickly. And he re- he replied and reiterated that he has a boring job, so he's able to get a lot of podcast listening done there. And I was actually in the same sort of situation up until I started my uh, new position. Not that I had a boring job, really, but it was a job where I could do a lot of podcast listening when I worked, because... For most of the evening, I would sit there by myself doing my job, and and it just helped the time go by a little faster when I had uh, friends and and fellow fans in my ears talking to me. Um, Like I said, just a couple weeks ago, at the beginning of August, I switched positions and unfortunately can't do that anymore, so I have fallen way, way behind on my own podcast listening, but... Still, I can relate to being able to, you know, dive into a show's archives and, and burn through them rather quickly to help the Nets go faster, and, and I'm, I'm glad that I can kind of give back in that way uh, to people who have either boring jobs or just simply jobs where they can listen to podcasts, because I know I've gotten through a lot of podcasts that way and, and, and really enjoyed having those to listen to. But anyway, thanks again, Gary. I, I really do appreciate the comments. As Gary mentioned, he is host of the podcast of GothamKnightsOnline.com, where they talk all about Batman. I haven't been able to listen to too many other episodes. Uh, it, it's on my list, but with the job changes I just mentioned, it it may be a while before I get there. But I have listened to a few episodes here and there, and, and I've enjoyed what I have heard. Plus, Gary and uh, GKO were both huge supporters of Legends of the Batman, which 
Michael and Kaiser and I always appreciated. Uh, they plug the show quite often, which I know brought in a lot of new listeners. So please check out Gotham Knights Online and the site's podcast. Uh, if you dig Batman, I, I think you'll dig it. And speaking of Gary, podcasts, and Batman, inspired by the Superman Podcast Network, Gary recently started a new site called the Batman Podcast Connection, which will serve as a hub for the best and brightest Batman podcasts on the internet, including Gotham Knights Online, uh, the now-defunct Legends of the Batman, as well as the Batman Universe, and, and several more. You can find that at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com, and there's also a Facebook page and a Twitter feed, and I've also linked to it at the side of the si- on the side rail at greatcrypton.com. While it's not Superman, Batman is still pretty awesome, and it's nice seeing that community growing and coming together like the Superman one has over the last you know two and a half three years. So be sure to check out all of Gary's projects even if you don't like Batman, because you should like Batman. And Gary, thanks again for the great feedback. Superman. Batman. Wonder Woman. The world's greatest heroes. They have saved the world time and time again. But what about their partners in heroism? Join me, Kenneth Laster, in a podcast journey through the lives of the Teen Titans in Youthful Rebellions, a Teen Titans podcast, starting with the revamp in 2003 and continuing through the New 52. Join Robin, Superboy, and Wonder Girl, and many more at titanspodcast.podomatic. See you there, and remember... Evil beware, we have waffles. So this episode, we are finally looking at the sixth storyline from the Sunday version of the Superman newspaper strip. This story was 13 parts long, strips 39 through 51 of the serial, and was originally published July 28th to October 20th, 1940. During that time, Superman had all kinds of adventures in other mediums. Action Comics number 28 came out just before the story began, so comic books saw the publication of two issues of Action Comics, as well as issue number seven of Superman. In the Daily Strip, the last two-thirds of King of the Kidnapping Ring was published, and then Superman took on and defeated the Hooded Saboteur, and then launched into the first third of another adventure, which we will cover in a future episode. And on the radio, Superman was a busy, busy Kryptonian, as he helped out Jimmy Olsen and his aunt at Lighthouse Point, solved the mystery of the Pillar of Fire at Gravesend, traveled down south to deal with Professor Thorpe's bathysphere and the curse of Dead Man's Island, and then started his journey back home for the majority of a storyline we will be looking at in two episodes, where the Man of Steel squared off against a very familiar menace. So, a lot of stuff going on during this storyline. This story, though, has been called The Dangerous Inheritance, and was written by Jerry Siegel. According to the Grand Comics database, art for the story was penciled by Wayne Boring and inked by Don Commissaro, with exception of strips 41 and 42, which they credit to being penciled by Leo Nowak and possibly inked by Commissaro. If the Nowak credit is correct, that would give more credence to the inker credit for the cover of Action Comics number 30, and it would also be his first published Superman work, as those two strips would have been published in mid-August, where Action 30 didn't come out until September. The problem is, I was always under the impression that Nowak didn't join the shop until early 1941. He certainly doesn't get regular credits until then, but it's entirely possible he was working on other strips or you know, just doing backgrounds and such until they trusted him to do more work. Bob Hughes' Who Drew Superman and Lambiac.net both say that Nowak joined the shop in September 1940, replacing Paul Cassidy, who had moved back to Wisconsin. But if that's correct, then the strips in this story couldn't have been penciled by Nowak, and the cover of Action 30 is thrown into doubt, since both of those would have been done 
before he joined the shop. Um, the two strips in this story credited to him do kind of have hints of what I recognize as Nowak's style, but it's it's just so hard to tell, especially right now. We will be seeing a lot more uh, Leo Nowak art down the road, especially once we get into the latter half of 1941 and into 1942. So, you know, maybe I'll, I'll get a better grasp of his style once I've really parsed those stories for the show. In any event, like I said, this story is called The Dangerous Inheritance. Foe of all evil and injustice is Superman, mighty champion of the helpless and oppressed. The Man of Steel's exploits often furnish material for news scoops by meek Daily Planet reporter Clark Kent. Kent's readers would be astounded to learn that the timid scribe and the daring man of tomorrow are one and the same. As we begin at the offices of the Daily Planet, Lois Lane is paid a visit by attorney Silas Pierce, who informs her that her uncle, William Bixby, no relation, has died and left her as the sole heir of 5,000 acres of land near a city called Green Pine. Despite not having many memories of dear old Uncle William, Lois is grateful for the inheritance, but taken down a bit when Pierce tells her the ground is worthless and barren. Pierce continues, though, saying that an unnamed party has offered $3,000 for the land. A very generous offer, he says. But, fascinated by the idea of being a landowner, Lois refuses to sell, which causes Pierce to fly into an angry rage, grab Lois by the arm, and demand that she sell anyway. Not willing to stand for such actions, Clark Kent drops his milksop persona, grabs Pierce by the collar, and literally throws him out the door, while George Taylor and Lois swoon over Clark's uncharacteristic yet manly display of manliness. By the next strip, we find out that Lois has decided to take a week of vacation to check out her new property. After making Clark carry about half her wardrobe in the luggage she's taking along, the two arrive at the train station, only to run smack into Pierce. The attorney again offers to buy the land, and Lois again refuses. Very well, so be it. It's your funeral, Pierce says before walking away. Using his powers of superintuition, Clark thinks Pierce may be a threat, so he uses his superhearing to listen in as Pierce makes a phone call, assuring the person on the other end of the line that Lois will never reach Green Pine alive. Knowing for sure now that Pierce is actually a threat, Clark tries to persuade Lois not to go, but she's having none of it and boards the train. As it departs, Clark slips behind a nearby building, changes to Superman, and leaps atop the train. A short while later, Lois has gone to bed and is dreaming sweet dreams of her inheritance. While atop the train, Superman has also settled in and enjoys the nighttime ride. He gets so lost in the night, in fact, that he completely misses that the train is approaching a tunnel. Seeing it at the very last instant, Superman does a backward somersault, flipping over the mountain and landing back atop the train once it passes to the other side. Unfortunately, the occupants inside hear Superman's landing. The brakeman climbs atop the train, only to find Superman chillaxing. And he responds like any reasonable person by repeatedly hitting Superman over the head with a 2 by 4 When the board finally breaks, but leaves Superman unfazed, the two men stand atop the train. The moving train, might I remind you, and argue a bit before the brakeman demands Superman jump. Our hero then toys with the guy a bit, and the brakeman eventually kicks Superman in the pants as the Man of Steel leaps off, laughing about the expression on the brakeman's face. As the bewildered brakeman climbs back down into the train, unable to explain just what the heck happened, Superman runs alongside the train and leaps back on top to resume his vigil. He then uses his X-ray vision to check on the goings-on inside the cabin, just as a man creeps into Lois' cabin with a knife. As the man draws back his blade, intent on thrusting it into Lois' sleeping form, Superman, with only seconds to act, swoops down and crashes his hand through the cabin's window, grabbing the thug's arm and stopping him from murdering Lois. But Lois awakens and sees her peril, and other passengers rush to the cabin, drawn by Lois' screams. Finally having shaken the knife from the thug's hand, Superman shoves him backward out of the cabin. The man faints from the pain inflicted by the Man of Steel, and our hero, his good deed done, 
leaps off knowing that he's no longer needed. Despite the fact that someone just tried to kill the woman he's trying to protect. But no matter. Back aboard the train, the would-be murderer starts to come to and begs for mercy, saying that he needed money and was paid to kill Lois. The conductor, or at least someone dressed like a conductor, they never really say who he is, but he demands to know who hired him to commit such a cowardly act. Before the man can respond, a hand reaches unseen around the corner, firing a pistol and shooting the man dead. A thorough search of the train can't find the shooter, but Lois is again approached by Pierce. For the third time, Lois rebuffs his offer to sell the land, and Pierce storms off. However, once alone on the rear platform of the train, Pierce slips a gun from his coat pocket. After using a handkerchief to remove any fingerprints, Pierce gives it a toss, and the weapon disappears into the tall grass beside the track. Meanwhile, having outdistanced the train, Superman approaches a trestle where a rock slide has blocked the track. As the train barrels down the track, closer and closer to the slide, Superman springs into action with a series of mighty blows, eventually clearing the tracks. Unfortunately, he then notices a section of track has broken loose, meaning certain doom for the oncoming train. Leaping out into midair, the Man of Steel positions himself on the side of the trestle, and heaves the track upward mere moments before the train thunders onto the trestle. As the train passes by, Superman uses all of his mighty strength to hold the track in place. But, just as the train reaches the other side, another rock slide rains down on the Man of Steel. It destroys the trestle, but Superman is able to escape unharmed. As the people on the train realize that they narrowly escaped with their lives, they think it must have been a miracle. But Lois thinks to herself that this kind of miracle must have been a job for Superman. Soon, the train arrives in Green Pine, and as Lois exits, she's met by Clark Kent. Lois asks how he got there so fast, and Clark says that he flew, in a plane, of course, as he was worried that Lois might need protection. Before Lois can emasculate Clark too much over that, they are approached by the Green Pine's sheriff, Henry Tybalt, who wants to know if Lois knows any reason why someone would want to kill her besides the fact that she's annoying. Lois gives a brief recap of the story so far, and the sheriff reiterates the point about the land being worthless. Lois still wants to check it out, though, so the sheriff introduces her to Leif Cram, a roughneck, admittedly, but the only one able to guide them to the property. Lois pulls out a fat wad of cash and pays Cram, who then heads off to buy supplies, as Clark berates Lois for flashing money around despite the fact that he does it in, like, every other story. But, anyway, while Cram is getting supplies, he's approached by Pierce, who offers to buy him a drink at a nearby bar. And don't worry, the story hasn't just taken a weird turn. Pierce tells Cram that he knows the thug's story, and how many people he's led into the woods before have never returned, but that Cram always returns, and with a larger bank account. Cram begins to grow irate at what he thinks is blackmail, but Pierce explains that he wants to hire Cram. He gives the thug a fistful of money and says if he kills Lois and Clark, there will be plenty more when he returns. The two then begin to plot a backup plan, should the killing not work, when the strip cuts to later. With supplies in hand, Cram meets up with Clark and Lois, and the three shove off in a canoe headed downriver. They begin to come into a rough patch of water, and Cram tells them to stay still and everything will be okay. But Cram then makes a sudden jerk, causing the boat to capsize. Clark treads water looking for Lois, but the girl reporter is dragged along by the current, strikes her head on a rock, and is, of course, knocked unconscious. Knowing he has to act fast, Clark stops, takes time to change to Superman, and then swims after her. The current carries Lois closer and closer to the waterfall. Superman streaks forward, but Lois is just out of reach as she is carried over the edge. With one last desperate dive, Superman leaps forward and grabs her, and then, bracing his foot against the rocky wall, pushes off and is able to land safely on shore, far from the jagged rocks at the bottom of the waterfall. After Lois revives, Clark tells her that she rescued him. Lois is about to belittle Clark when they are interrupted by Cram, who says he was able to salvage the canoe. 
Clark wonders to himself if the spill was really an accident, but they continue on, soon arriving at the property, which, apparently, much to the surprise of Lois, and the reader, since it makes absolutely no sense, contains a volcano, a mining camp, and a refinery. And probably an ice cream shop, because there should always be an ice cream shop near a volcano. As the boat arrives to shore, Pierce and two armed thugs step out from the trees. No word on how they got there, since it was apparently very dangerous to get there from Green Pine. So dangerous, in fact, that they had to have a guide and couldn't just go there on their own, but Pierce and his thugs seem to make it there okay. We never get an explanation about that, so just go with it. Anyway, Pierce tells Lois that since she wouldn't sell the land, he's taking it by force. Cram reminds about the reward he was promised, but Pierce orders him taken captive as well, and the three captives are led down into the mine. Pierce explains that Lois's uncle had told of the existence of a pitchblende mine. When her uncle died, Pierce knew a golden opportunity awaited and took over the mining of the radium for himself. Clark then asks why he's telling them all this, and Pierce replies that, well, not only is he a 1940s villain, and thus has to monologue the entire plan, but that they'll never leave the mine alive anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Cram, thinking he's got a chance at freedom, tries to make an escape, but Pierce shoots him in the back. He then leads Clark and Lois into the radium storage room and chains them to the wall. And now, Pierce says, we leave you to the mercies of the radium emanations. I'm sure you'll find the effects of the concentrated radium in this doom destructive, to put it mildly. Wait. We learned in Action Comics number 30 that radium has photographic qualities. So, what's this supposed to do? Photograph them to death? Look at this photograph Every time I do it makes me laugh How did our eyes get so red? And what the hell is on Joey's head? I mean, sure, it's a terrible song, but is it deadly? And yeah, I suppose they could get cancer or whatever, but they'll die from starvation long before the cancer gets them. Anyway, Pierce and his thugs leave, cackling about their evil evilness. But wait, what's this? It seems Pierce has made a fatal miscalculation. No, no, not the leaving people to die of cancer thing, and no, not chaining freaking Superman to a wall with chains that wouldn't hold a mildly irritated puppy. His fatal misstep was that Cram was only wounded, not killed, by the gunshot. And now Cram is clawing his way down the tunnel to a pile of dynamite, intent on revenge. Back in the radium storage room, Lois has, again, conveniently fainted, allowing Clark to snap his bonds and go into action as Superman. The Man of Steel smashes through the lead-lined door and begins to put a whooping on Pierce and his thugs. Just then, Cram achieves his goal by exploding the dynamite, blowing up the mine and causing the volcano to erupt, killing almost everyone inside, save for Lois Lane, whom Superman saves before leaping out of harm's way. When Lois revives, Clark explains that Superman saved them from the mine and that everyone is dead, but that's okay because Lois is now a millionaire thanks to the mine. But Lois says she plans on giving the land to the medical profession, preferring to stay a sob sister rather than a millionaire. Some people might say you're crazy for those sentiments, Lois, Clark says, but I think you're swell. And with that, Clark and Lois board the canoe and row off into the sunset. The end. To get into the notes, strip 39, we find out here that Lois had an uncle by the name of William Bixby. No relation. This marks the first member of Lois, or any of the supporting cast, actually, introduced in a Jerry Siegel written story. And it comes just a little more than a month and a half after the introduction of Lois's uncle, Horace Morton, on the radio show. And I'll talk more about that in a bit, but I thought that was interesting, especially given that the Lighthouse Point storyline on the radio, which introduced more of Jimmy's extended family, was just wrapping up as this story got underway. 
Pierce offers $3,000 for 5,000 acres of land that, that Lois just inherited. He calls it, quote, an extremely generous offer. And even Clark seems in favor of it as he says, $3,000? Well, that's better than nothing. Now, I realize that $3,000 was a lot of money in 1940. But simple math tells you that's only 60 cents an acre, or about $10 an acre today, which is hardly a generous offer by any stretch of the imagination, especially for land that you haven't even seen. So then when Lois refuses to sell, Pierce gets belligerent and even physically violent towards Lois. It's a rather small matter given when it was published, but I think they tipped their hand a bit too early about Pierce's intentions. It might have been more interesting to lead the reader to believe that he was just performing his duties as an attorney for the Bixby estate and then thrown in a swerve later. But at the same time, it's 1940. Plus, without revealing here that Pierce isn't completely altruistic, it would have been another month and a half or even two months before they revealed it, which, you know, maybe Siegel didn't think it would have worked as well in the, the Sunday format doing, doing it that way. I, I get the feeling that Siegel is still struggling a bit with the format of the Sunday strip, which is odd given that he's gelled pretty well with the daily strip format and the Sunday is much closer to the comic book than the daily. But anyway, I did really like Clark grabbing the guy and tossing him out. Afterward, we get a thought from Clark where he says, stepping out of character was risky, but I couldn't stand idly by. And we've seen this type of thing once or twice before, and I just love the idea that Clark pretends to be this meek and mild wimp but when push comes to shove, he will drop that persona, at least temporarily, and do what needs to be done. From the perspective of people seeing Clark as his own person, and not Superman's alter ego as we see him, it's more authentic. I mean, we, all, we probably all know people who lack a little backbone. But I like to think that even they, when it came right down to it, would now and then step up like this and not always be the the meek and mild-mannered type. Strip 40, in the middle of this strip, Pierce, after propositioning and getting rebuffed by Lois a second time, calls someone on the phone and says, she wouldn't listen to reason, but don't worry, she will never reach Green Pine alive. And just who is he talking to here? The end of the strip makes it pretty clear that he was working alone. And I can't imagine he would have that kind of conversation with, you know, some random flunky. So it just feels like a very good example of nonsense exposition. Uh, no other real comments about this particular strip other than the second to last panel is a nice shot of Superman opening his shirt to reveal the S. It's really not a new kind of shot. I mean, we've seen this shot for a while, but I like seeing it. And this is a particularly uh, dynamic looking shot. Uh, this this panel is particularly dynamic looking. And Superman's chin is huge. Actually, now that I kind of think about it, the face looks a little bit off model from what we've seen until now, but still, it's a really nice panel. Strips 41 and 42, as I said earlier, these are the strips supposedly penciled by Leo Nowak. Artistically, you can feel a shift in the art in these panels. It isn't a huge switch. Um, readers, readers at the time, looking at each strip a week apart, probably didn't even notice the change, but looking at them all together, it, it does become more clear. The shift is apparent both in the layout and the framing of the various panels, and in the look of the characters. Um, just looking at Superman, he looks more muscled up. Uh, the S is bigger on his chest, and... Again, it's not a huge switch, but if you really study it, knowing that there is a different artist, you can, or likely a different artist, you, you can tell. Sticking with art-related comments, unfortunately, despite my, I guess you, you could call it praise, of the depiction of the non-white-skinned characters in Action Comics number 30, here we have a uh, black character on the train, apparently a waiter or 
steward or something or something as he's carrying a, a tray of drinks. But sadly, it, it's a depiction that is m- a much more much more of a racial stereotype. Um, it's not as bad as gargantua teapots, but still, he's got that quote-unquote blackface look with the the dark black face and the big red lips and the beady white eyes. It's drawn comically, I guess, maybe is a word you could use to describe it. Um, You know, it doesn't feel like a mean-spirited racial stereotype. I mean, I guess all racial stereotypes are mean-spirited to a degree, but, you know, given the times, it, it... it just doesn't feel like the artist or the or the writer was specifically setting out to uh, be mean spirited towards people that aren't white skinned, if that makes any sense, and I really hope it does. Um, but still, regardless of the motivations behind it, it's it's sad to see, especially with the character's dialogue, which is kind of the same thing. But once more, as I often say, it's the 1940s. I can't excuse it, but I can accept it in the context, or at least shake my head and move on. Um, On the story over these two strips, it it was a cute sequence, but ultimately unnecessary to the overall storyline. I'm sure kids reading the strip got a kick out of Superman taking a nap on top of a moving train, and then somersaulting over the mountain and and getting hit on the head uh, with a 2x4 by the brakeman, but... It just felt like two weeks of the strip wasted because it didn't really do anything to advance the overall plot of the story. Jumping ahead to strip 44, we had a nice dynamic save by Superman as Lois is nearly murdered, and I liked how they had Superman saving Lois without ever actually boarding the train. Luckily, the would-be killer wasn't much of a threat and was killed himself soon after because Superman then just takes off after saving Lois. I mean, wouldn't it make more sense to, you know, stick around, given that Lois was nearly murdered, and he wasn't for sure... He had no way of knowing the the murderer or the would-be murderer was going to pass out and then get killed, you know? So as far as he knew, the guy was still a threat. It just doesn't make any sense. Strip 45, the would-be murderer is shot by parties unknown, and at the end of the strip, Pierce silently walks to the back of the train and tosses the gun out. It's clear Pierce was the shooter, especially when you look back at the top of the strip and see the shooter's sleeve is exactly the same as the coat that Pierce is wearing, but it was a much more subtle way of revealing that than I would have expected in a story from this time. The The second-to-last panel is also a great shot as we see the gun lying in, in the tall grass in the very forefront of the panel with Pierce in the train pulling away into the night in the background. It's just a nice example of, um, I guess it would be forced perspective, I guess that's what you call it. But it's a nice panel, whatever the technical term for it is. Strip 46, we have another nice scene, both well-written and well-illustrated, of Superman clearing the tracks, only to discover the tracks have been busted, and, and then he has to hold them together as the train passes safely. It reminded me of not only Superman the movie, but a sort of similar scene from the Happy Land Amusement Park storyline on the radio where he held the track together on the roller coaster. And again, Superman does this stunt and then leaps off without being seen. Uh, Lois definitely seems to pick up on the idea that Superman was probably responsible, but no one else sees him. So I'm not sure if Siegel was taking cues from the radio show on that or if it was just a thing he did, but... I guess we'll have to see if he continues to do more of it as we go forward with the various Siegel-written mediums. Uh, Jumping ahead once again to Strip 48, I liked the conversation between Pierce and Cram. I liked that it wasn't a direct conversation, as you might expect in this era. Pierce carefully puts it out there that he knows Cram often engages in dirty doings with people that he leads into the woods. And at first, Cram thinks he's being blackmailed, and... He even pulls a knife on Pierce, ready to stab him right there in the middle of a shady bar. But Pierce pulls a gun, which, if you think about it, means Pierce was packing two pistols on his person, but anyway. um, Pierce pulls a gun and settles him down and then explains that he wants to hire Cram to kill Lois and Clark. 
it was just a different kind of conversation than we've gotten before where the bad guy du jour either already has a big elaborate scheme laid out or goes and gets his flunkies who are willing to do whatever with little explanation. Uh, jumping to strip 50, a good case in point right here, where Cram and Lois and Clark finally get down river, and they are confronted by Pierce, who is flanked by gun-toting thugs of unknown name and origin, who seem willing to do whatever Pierce tells them to do. And that's not a, a complaint, because I'm willing to accept, and I keep saying this, that it's 1940, and that villains at this time were, by and large, very one-dimensional. But it does go to show that the difference in the conversation between Pierce and Cram at the bar compared to the other uh, similar situations that we've seen. Uh, but then we get the, the explanation of Pierce's plan, which involves Lois's uncle and a pitchblend mine. Sound familiar? The story, and even the plan, isn't anything like the Horace Morton's weather predictions storyline. Or, or is at least different enough that it can't be a ripoff, can't be called a ripoff. But the use of Lois's long-lost uncle in a pitchblend mine in the same story is pretty striking. The Horace Morton's arc aired from June 10th to June 21st, and this storyline began publication on July 28th. But when you consider production times, Siegel's script would have likely been done and art well underway by the time the Horace Morton arc aired. And the script for that would have obviously been done weeks or months before. So the question is, did the radio writers lift the idea from Siegel's script? I mean, were they privy to Siegel's script before publication? Or was Siegel privy to upcoming stories on the radio and, and lift plot elements from that? Or is it just all one big coincidence? The world may never know, but it's just very interesting. Strip 51, at the end of this strip, Cram has set off the dynamite, causing the volcano to erupt. And just who mines inside a volcano anyway? But <laughs> things are going crazy nuts, and Superman has grabbed Lois and is leaping off. Cram was killed when the dynamite exploded, because he was right there by it. But Pierce is still there, alive, and he's screaming well within the earshot of our so-called hero, I don't want to die! Save me! And Superman just flies off, leaving Pierce to die in a volcano. You stay classy, Superman. And my last page-by-page -page comment is that the ending, again, was a bit different, with Lois and Clark rowing off into the sunset to return home, rather than the last panel just being a wrap-up at the Daily Planet, as it has so often been. It was just something a little different. Oh, and Lois decides to give away the land rather than be a millionaire. Uh, yeah, sure, it makes no sense, but maintaining the status quo is important, especially when you've only got two panels left in the story. Overall, this was a fun story, and I liked it. I, I just didn't have many comments about it. It was pretty solidly written, there were no, you know, huge plot gaffes or Superman suddenly fighting giant spiders for no reason. And there was no major twist that removes the, the sense from the entire storyline. By and large, the Sundays so far have been more missed than hit. And while this isn't an outstanding story, it was pretty good, all things considered. And, and definitely not a bad story by any stretch. So, you know... It, it, it may be one of the strongest efforts from the Sunday Strip so far. One thing I will give it extra credit for is that each individual strip in the story felt more, not really self-contained, but like each strip was entertaining on its own. And now that I think about it, that is one thing that kind of sets the Sunday Strip apart from the Daily Strip or the comics. And maybe could explain why it hasn't felt like Siegel was really clicking with the Sunday Strip. Because with the comics, all 13 pages or 12 pages, whatever it is, of the story are right there together. So if you want to spend a page on exposition and talking heads, you can get away with that a little easier. In the dailies, those are a different animal altogether because you are telling the story in three or four panel increments. But in the Sundays, 
you really need each strip to give the reader a little action and advance the plot. And I'm sure the syndicate was hep on keeping Superman in the strip as much as possible, even if it was just as Clark Kent, so that the title character wasn't absent from his own strip. Plus, you need some kind of cliffhanger or moment of suspense or, or dangling point at the end of each strip to tempt the reader to come back next week. And all that is just really hard to manage and keep the story going with a natural flow. But I think he did a better job of it with this storyline, which helped make the story more entertaining, even though there really wasn't much there as far as plot goes. Art-wise, period racism aside, the art is really, really good. Um, I've raved and raved about the Boring and Commissaro team in previous episodes, and it's good seeing Leo Nowak possibly coming in as well. There's not too much to say that I haven't already said in previous episodes about the Boring Commissaro uh, collaborations, but as always, please be sure to check out the show notes at greatcrypton.com where uh, I will post scans of various panels from the story. And if you want to read the story in its entirety, you can find it like all the Sunday strips covered so far in Superman the Sunday Classics from Kitchen Sink Press. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson... J. David Weider... And... Michael Kaiser... Take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right, or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. Guy Gardner podcast. I got a fast connection, so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner podcasts. The internet is for Guy Gardner podcasts. The internet is for and sometimes Kyle Rayner podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy. Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. 
I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneoftheguys.libsyn.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Internet is for internet is for internet is for just one of the guys dot libson dot com. Yeah! Even though it happened a little more than a week ago at the time this episode is released, I can't end the show without acknowledging the passing of Joe Kubert. The legendary comic artist died August 12, 2012, at the age of 86. Even though throughout Kubert's long career, he touched virtually every major comic book character at some point, I never really had a direct connection with his work or any personal experiences to share. But you can't be a student of comic history without recognizing the endless impact that he had on the medium. He started drawing in the 1930s and was still producing art up until his death, and not work that was simply a shadow of his former self. Even in his 80s, he was creating art with a skill and technical expertise that put many modern artists to shame. His connections to Superman were sadly slim. I believe he penciled only one Superman story in his lifetime, which was a DC Comics Presents issue with... Superman and the Demon. Uh, He also illustrated the character on various covers and such, though not as often as I'm sure many would have liked. But still, it's Joe Kubert. His contributions to the medium should not in any way be understated. Uh, Simply put, he was one of the greats, and he will definitely be missed. But thanks everyone for joining me for this episode. Next time, we will be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 31. Will it be a better story than the one from issue number 30, or will there be another reveal at the end that turns the entire story into a train wreck? Hope you'll come back and find out. In the meantime, please stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for everything you need to know about the show, including show notes, back episodes, and more. The site will also link you to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. Follow the show on both sites to get updates and other news from time to time. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do that via iTunes or the RSS feed, and links to both of those can be found at the site as well. If you have feedback or questions or comments about the show, you can email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com, or you can message me on Facebook or Twitter or leave comments on the individual show posts at the site. Uh, Once more, I want to thank Gary Adams for the great feedback. And just as one last reminder, if you are interested in Batman podcasts, be sure to check out batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. And if you host or, or know of a great Batman podcast that isn't listed, contact Gary through the site and he will hook you up. If Superman's more your bag, don't forget the Superman homepage as well as the Superman Podcast Network. Like the Batman Podcast Connection, both sites are big supporters of this show and and all things Superman, in fact. So both sites are well worth a visit. And lastly, I invite you to check out my other podcast, Green Lantern's Light, which I co-host with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor. Uh, That's a show where we discuss... Another one of my favorite characters, and that is the Green Lantern. And you can find that at GreenLanternsLight.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
I have been drawing all my life. I started drawing when I was two years old, and I could hold the pencil. And I always loved to draw, and I always wanted to be a cartoonist. And I became a cartoonist. I, am, I feel very, very fortunate I was able to do this. And this is what I've been doing all my life. If you love to draw, if you love to draw enough, and that makes you very happy just to be able to draw. But if you can do this, and people will pay you for this, they will give you money. That's wonderful. <laughs> and it has been that way for me uh, since, since I am 12 years old. I have been working as a cartoonist. I have been employed every day since I was 12 years old, and uh, this is the work I do. This is what I love to do, and uh, I'm very, very lucky. And which figures did you draw for DC Comics? I drew... Which stories, like for which stories? Well, I, my, the stories that I've done, uh, Sergeant Rock, Enemy Ace, Superman, Batman, The Flash, Hawkman, every... Every, almost every cartoon you can think of, Spider-Man, uh, uh, Hulk, uh, uh, every character you can think of, I have one. And can you uh, explain, like, for, the, for those people, uh, how it goes into work? So, let's say you make a Spider-Man cartoon. How does, it, how does it work? Who thinks of the story? How, how do you know what to do? Uh, in, in the comic book business, there are many different kinds of jobs, and there are people who are writers, and they write the story, and there are people who are artists, like myself, who illustrate the story. So there are many different kinds of jobs. There are some people, there are some artists, who write and draw. But for many years, there have been writers who do all these stories, like the Superman, the Batman, the Flash, and so on and so forth. They will write the story, they will then give you the story to draw, and you will draw what they have written. And so when you finish one, they have another one waiting for you. And when you finish that, they have another one waiting for you. So that's, that's the way it works.